it'll take a few years before everybody is fully comfortable with their ability to put any sort of their data at you know in use within this call it large language model as a service hi i'm esther and i'm sean i write about ai news here at tech target in massachusetts and i edit esther's stories we're here to talk with tech experts about everything ai and chat gpt and don't forget about google bard whether it's who's ahead in the generative ai race the metaverse digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. Today, we are joined by Jim Cascad, the Chief Executive Officer at Conversica, an AI sales assistant platform. Before becoming CEO at Conversica, Jim led Janaran which was later acquired by Kamai, a customer identity and access management platform. At the start of his career, Jim was a coder that created different data analytics products. He later became a product manager before honing other data mining and business intelligence products. Since then, he began to lead companies. As of today, he has led 11 companies. Welcome, Jim, to the Targeting AI podcast. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so to kick it up, kick it off, you've been following technology for such a long time, as well as been a CEO for a long time. What makes Conversica different from other other companies you've led? Well, thank you for asking. I think uh, Conversica, I can proudly beat my chest, is one of the largest players in AI. Not because you know we're dominating the world with AI because of our own uh, developed technology, but because We've been in the business since 2007 and launched our first AI for sales solution back in 2009. If you remember what happened in 2009, the world was blowing up, the Great Recession. Great time for companies to look at ways to automate. And that was 14 years ago. So fast forward, you know, we began applying um, a lot of new technology, which, of course, many have heard about, large language models, et cetera. Um, and I think as an applied AI company, we've really focused on applications and being in the fastest tech market in the world, you know, the history of tech, you know, I think um, a few stand out and we we're thankfully one of them. So, so, Jim, how long have you been working with AI? Like, did you come into contact with the, let's say, traditional early AI in some of your other uh, tech roles? Yeah, I mean, I. I started as an engineer, so again, I can probably be a, uh, a player in the space as a CEO that actually got his hands dirty. Um, back in 1990, I worked for a company that was very involved in data and analytics, the largest data warehousing vendor in the world called Teradata. And I became responsible for all of their AI products. And back in the 1990s, AI really meant you know, advanced machine learning, deep learning. And so we had very sophisticated solutions around that. We even built um, models that were embedded in the relational database. So I've been very involved with advanced analytic solutions that are now, you know, being supercharged by the cloud and really bringing, you know, a whole new level of disruption to application development. So when you talk about... um. AI, so large, you mentioned large language models, right? So they're very sexy now with all ChatGPT, all that stuff, but they existed before OpenAI as well. Correct. 
Yeah. Right. And so you must, when did you start working with LLMs, you know, the traditional older generation ones as, as long ago as 10, 15 years ago, or was it a little bit more recent? No, no. I think the way you have to look at large language models, you know, the word large, even back in the day when we said large databases, we were talking about terabytes and then it moved into petabytes with uh, platforms like Hadoop. Today, large language models, large has moved from megabytes of training data to now, you know, much larger volumes leveraging cloud. And that only became available through some early research that Google started, you know, with their developments around Palm um, that weren't accessible by the public. And I think uh, a bit of that development, like many uh, technologies that take off, someone will share a white paper, others will read it, begin to develop it. And that's kind of the story of OpenAI, you know, kind of embracing a lot of what's been shared I think their success really became available through the application of a large language model using ChatGPT, it being an application of the technology that was put in the hands of everybody. So people, anybody could really experience, um, you know, the level of, of uh, disruption this technology can have. Meanwhile, you know, other companies like Meta, Google, Amazon, quietly developing their own you know, and soon releasing uh, public versions. I think much of this became available, Sean, in kind of 2019 to those that were really paying attention. For me, I became aware of it on a walk with the head of AI in the CTO office at Google, who's a personal friend of mine. And he was telling me about their you know, their developments, um, which really got me excited. And when I became aware of Conversica, I was like, damn, we could really apply this in a way that could be extremely disruptive. So 2019 is basically when I became, you know, I think a student of it. So speaking of application, right, um, you, we've spoken a little bit about the difference between creating products and you obviously created products at the start of your co career and then applying it. What would you say is that difference? And have we gotten to the point where we are using AI or applying this in a smart manner? Um, you know, the key word is in a smart manner. I mean, I think any, any um, you know, technology revolution um Let's, let's talk about it in terms of technology adoption. You know, a lot of people follow key inflection points where 25% of, say, the American population has adopted something, and that's considered a real tipping point. So if you look at the time it takes something to, to be invented, and then, you know, the majority of the population, over 50%, that's great. But I think early indicators is like that kind of 25%. So when electricity became available, it took 46 years for 25% of the American population to use it. I think telephone was 35 years, radio 31, television 26. It's a lot of big numbers, right? And then when you got some real big inflection points like the PC, it took 16 years for 25%. Guess how much, how many folks have adopted this new large language model application of the large language model, um, you know, since it was launched, it's taken less than a year for over 25% of the population to, to leverage it. So it's the fastest. And that's worldwide, right? That's worldwide. So, 
I think, um, you know, it's it's amazingly quick now because the the um, speed at which applications can be developed on a particular technology. So you have to think about now cloud enabled products when you make large language models or generative AI, a cloud product and developers can develop on it, boom, applications just blossom faster than you can think of them. And so for me, you know, when I developed advanced analytics back in the 1996, when I became a product manager for business intelligence, machine learning, deep learning suite, oh my God, it would take so much work to get even one customer to to adopt it, let alone 25% of the American population or globally. Um, and then, you know, later on, I became lucky enough to run a thousand data scientists. I was running a very large line of business of just massive number of thinkers. And that's a pretty, you know, amazing experience. We did about, I don't know, about 800 big data projects a year. And it's still, the adoption curve was so slow. So I think, you know, this is a big inflection now for all of us. Would you say that because we're applying it so fast, does that mean we're more prone to errors, right? Because a lot of people are more interesting. And should we take it slower, you know, than in those suggestions? You know, I think, you know, there's always a worry about a disruptive technology. And the best parallel I can give you of what's going on right now to what we have already experienced in the past would be just go back in time when we were all talking about cloud infrastructure and there was the private versus public cloud discussion when Amazon and Rackspace and Google compute, everybody came on with cloud services. The enterprise companies said, there's no way I'm going to put my data in the public cloud. No way. And so now fast forward, large language models, your ability to leverage these public generative AI solutions, no way am I a big enterprise going to use public AI <laughs> infrastructure, right? So there's a big move to private LLM, which again, is just it's just a sequence of, you know, kind of been there, done that. Once, once people get really comfortable with the amount of governance that's put around the public application solutions, the public cloud solutions, then the big enterprises will start to move from private LOM to public LOM. And it'll take, you know, pretty much the same period of time as it did with cloud. It'll take a few years before everybody is fully comfortable with their ability to put any sort of their data at you know, in use within this, call it large language model as a service. Okay, now I'm going to say the uh, the great worldwide buzzword generative AI, which is somewhat synonymous with LLMs. It's, it's penetrated every part of technology seemingly suddenly, including daily life. It's permeated every conversation you have, even with non-tech people. Um, but you guys are, are doing it, I think. And a big part of that generative AI are digital assistants, which many of us already use in some form. And you have, you're targeting yours toward enterprises. But so how has Conversica already incorporated generative AI into your platform? 
Yeah, I mean, any CEO is proud of what, you know, they're representing, right? I think Conversica has, has been an ex- amazing ride for me in the last three years. And when I, when I took over, you know, the first thing we focused on was shifting to the enterprise because we knew that AI automation was going to be a must for companies struggling to make their workforces productive, Sean, Esther. So we began using large language model tech in the early 2020 uh, timeframe. I took over at the end of 2019. But what we found very quickly is the technology was not ready. And that meant um, APIs of public services weren't available consistently. Um, and there were a lot of issues around you know, what the industry is referring to as hallucinations or inaccurate responses uh, to questions and um, solicitate you know, um, requests of content. And I think for us, we became pretty afraid of deploying anything that was available at that time. We were using GPT 2.0, and now we're at 4.0. Um, and it was just, you know, for us, we realized we needed to wait a little bit, experiment with other LOM solutions, and then start to build governance. And for us, generative AI now in the Conversica world definitely gives you that human-like exchange, but it gives it to you with a very uh, focused attention to the brand that we're powering, their domain knowledge. So name a significant brand and um, know that any sort of use of generative AI would be tailored to that brand in their content. Matter of fact, we create a private large language model for each of our clients. And so we're in that private versus public kind of part of the history and evolution. We also don't just co-pilot. That's a term used to give the human just some assistance to what content they should use. And so generative AI generates content for someone who's quote unquote, the human's the pilot and the generative AI is the co-pilot. We are the pilot. Our generative AI solution is the pilot. We engage directly with end users. Our assistants um, leverage generative AI with no human um, involved. And that means that you have to be super accurate. You can't misrepresent the brand and you can't get yourself in trouble. And so there's a massive amount of governance around that, starting with private LOM and then any use of our public LOM solutions out there like OpenAI. We're very careful to put filters on the input. You can't ask it, you know, sensitive questions and filters on the output. It can't answer questions that are inappropriate per that brand. And even though for us, public LOMs, maybe 1% of the output of our solutions and 99% is the private LOM, we still want to make sure that 1% doesn't get our brands in trouble. So we released our first next-gen chat back in October prior to the November release of ChatGPT because we knew it was coming and we wanted to get ahead of the market a little bit for our enterprises. That's uh, that's super interesting, though. Um, and one more question about the Gen AI. So you were actually kind of using GPT-3 th- uh, before it hit the market, like just Correct. before. Yeah. So was that considered like beta? Or, or Yeah, that was beta. Um, we had a number of customers, enterprise customers, 
kicking the tire. Now, keep in mind, they didn't know ChatGPT was coming. So there was still that kind of hesitation of, wow, why, how is this so human-like? And, um, you know, how does it work on my data? And there were still the same questions of, you know, how's my data protected? You know, I think as an enterprise software company or SaaS company, you got to be, you know, ISO certified, SOC 2 certified. If you're dealing with uh, healthcare, HIPAA high tech, you know, PCI for transactional data, you've got to be really, you know, careful about ultimately how you're handling your customer's data. And that applies to large language models. So for us, yeah, we, we started using uh, GPT 3.0 for what we call small talk. So when our AI engages an end customer's client for users, it'll have a conversation about the, 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 our customer's brand. If the question um, kind of veers from that and someone says, you know, what do you like to do, you know, in your pastime? Because they're thinking that they're talking to something that's so human, it's, it, they think it's human. So they say, you know, what do you like to do on your pastimes? Because I surf, do you surf? And, you know, RAI, then the brands that we represent, you know, let's just let's just pick one, AT&T. Well, there's nothing about surfing in AT&T's, you know, massive amount of content about, you know, what they do and who they are. So you've got to go to the large language model and say, well, what's a good answer around surfing? And uh, what is it and how do you do it? And someone might dig deeply into a small talk um, conversation, just like we humans do. We might talk business, but I might ask you, well, what are you doing in, you know, on the other side on the East Coast and what's the weather like? So our small talk version of, of our generative AI solution does pull from 3.0, then 3.5, now 4.0. And I think... Um, it's interesting to see how it's evolved. You know, it's getting a lot more powerful. I think there's a lot more attention to privacy, you know, and data governance in general. Just a quick follow up, because I don't I actually don't know if I know this, but do you not like, especially with the brands that you're working with, how does the person at the other end of that know whether or not they're talking to a real person or not? Do you like make it clear or not? Yeah. So, you know, we have an ethics committee and um, we provide guidance around AI ethics. And our our recommendation is to always disclose, um, you know, so our, our AI come in the form of persona. You can, you know, depending on the function of what it's, you know, accomplishing, it could be doing marketing tasks, it could be doing sales tasks or even uh, customer success tasks. Um, and so you might name it. Ashley Garcia, this, you know, uh, ticketing assistant. And then underneath that title, you might put AI powered um, so that the end user is aware that they're engaged with an AI, not a human. Some of our clients, um, because our assistants are so powerfully human, some of our clients choose not to disclose, you know, which is, again, part of the debate in the world of, you know, um, is that a good ethical decision or not? I think a lot of people fear that if someone, you know, finds out it's an AI, they may not engage it. Our position is the, the wallet share is going to the younger buyer and they actually prefer to talk to an AI than a human. And so disclosing it's an AI is a positive. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I think there's still a debate out there. Uh, so long story short, many of our customers don't. 
disclose. And so you don't know if you're talking to a human or not. Well, I'm a boomer and my wallet share goes to a lot of digital assistants. Because <laughs> so so I'm an Instagram shopper. You know? Uh, But anyway, I I had a little question prepared, but I want to change it a little bit. So we've been, the conversation has quickly changed from large language models to small language models, to public to private, little backtracking, trading on internal data, all that kind of stuff. But don't larger, small language models also have hallucinations? Can't they be a little unreliable, even if they're only trained on internal data? Uh, great question. You know, so the way generative transfer models work, you know, at a high level is they're just trying to predict what the answer is. And so they'll give a response with a confidence level of zero to 100%. And what it says and what it predicts is based on the content that it's been trained on. So it can only hallucinate to the extent of what the data it sits on top of. And so it may pull pieces of information together and try to best answer a question. And it may answer it inappropriately um, if it has a lot of inappropriate, not inappropriate content, a lot of content to kind of draw its conclusion from. So small language models with less data can only hallucinate with the content that it has. And so it may get a little off, but not a lot off because it just doesn't have a plethora of, of potential things it can, you know, it can answer with. So the long story short is fewer, if not zero hallucinations, if it's trained just on a client's data only. Well, let's say it's trained on Converse sneakers um, and representing Converse as a brand and it gets the model wrong. Like it spits out the wrong model that a customer is looking for or answers the wrong number of, you know, laces or, you know, something, little details like that. Would that not? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sean. So it it could, you know, someone says, what's the best men's running shoe with a high arch, you know, it may give you the wrong uh, shoe recommendation, but ask yourself if you have, if you're Converse and you have employees um, representing your shoe in every shoe store, how many of them know your shoes so well that they too may not recommend the right brand? I mean, at this point, it is kind of, we are somewhat competing with uh, the state of the art, which is human, and humans aren't accurate. And so you have to ask yourself, is the AI going to be equal or better than a human that doesn't have the capacity to process the entire content of Converse's shoe line and every aspect of every review and what any end customer has discussed or said about it? I mean, ultimately, the AI is going to get access to more data than a human would and make better recommendations. Sure, it will get some incorrectly, um, some incorrect. But I think the amount of incorrect versus the volume of correct is going to be so small and correct versus, you know, versus, um, you know, positively uh, helping. And at the end of the day, as Converse as a brand, I just care that you don't say something totally inappropriate. You don't, you know, make my end customer prospect unhappy because you picked up a topic and you started saying something that really offended them. And that's where I think the focus needs to be, not so much getting every answer right. 
um, technically around the brands that are represented. Um, although that is that is something that we all achieve or try to achieve. But really, we're focused right now on just making sure that our false statements don't become inappropriate statements, you know. And, and Got it. That's super important, to right. say the least. Yeah. Um, I do want a clarification question, Jim, if you don't mind. What is the difference between small language models and large language models for our listeners who are like, oh, you guys are throwing out around all these technical terms. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 basics is just how much data it's been trained on, right? Think of it as a big uh, algorithm that tries to determine the best answer to a question. And the more data, the larger data set, the larger the model. And um I think that's probably the simplest way to 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 view it. And depending on, you know, the the, the area of focus, you may not need it to be large because you may only want it to answer questions around what's germane to you. So it may be about health, maybe about fitness, maybe about a certain retail product um, or set of products. And those are the things that you care about, not, you know, give me your perspective and philosophy on some political topic, you know, and have a human-like side conversation that has nothing to do with the brand that you're representing. So I think this is where the application of this technology for enterprises becomes more focused. They don't need it to be a Siri or something that's generally intelligent about any topic. What they want it to be is intelligent about the topics around their brands and services, products and services. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You're saying that for enterprises, it's not so much about like Tell me about everything in the world. It's more like, tell me about this specific place that I'm this specific company that I'm talking about. Speaking of data, um, one of the things I contacted you about about two months ago is Reddit, um, when they changed their rules on basically what uh, how vendors can use the data on their system. So what are your thoughts on the question of ownership What and what can be used to train AI systems? Does everything go? Um, and do vendors of generative AI systems like yourself have a responsibility to create it, such as writers, developers, and more? Yeah. I mean, I think um, I'll take you to just today, uh, starting to answer that question today. You know, OpenAI has been under significant pressure because of the, you know, the breadth of the use of their technology platform. And they've implemented features to allow content suppliers, essentially any of us on the web that has a web presence um, to basically say, don't look at my content and don't use my content for training. And so they have a little, you know, what they call a GPT bot that goes out and scours the internet, just like um, Google does to index for their search engine. And now you can say, no, you can't use my data on my website. So that's a good example of you know, the tech companies like OpenAI saying, hey, we're sensitive to using um, everything because uh, we know not everybody wants their content to be leveraged. And I think in terms of ownership, you know, there is a sensitivity because content's king. And when you write a, a really thoughtful article and you decide to sell that versus publish it openly, you don't want your, you know, your book or your article that you're selling to be brought in the open domain and everybody make a copy of it, 
you know, that's copyright infringement. And so when you look at ownership and licensing, you know, AI generated content becomes so common and issues related to ownership and licensing will have to be addressed. And I think it, it includes, you know, clarifying who can profit from AI generated works and determine how maybe royalties and other revenue shares could be distributed. Um, and then I think there's going to be a battle on fair use, you know, around if I use just some of your content, not all of it uh, to, for my model. Um, or there's content that's already been made available under a, um, a license that allows me to use. And so I think ultimately these large language model as a service vendors are going to have to pay attention, uh, you know, to the content that they use to train the model based on the content suppliers or sources and their wishes of whether they want that to be generally available or not. Uh, we're moving on to the topic of digital assistance now. Can you speak a little bit about your digital assistant technology? I know you call it the extra coworker or something like that. <laughs> we call it the growth workforce. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're actually think we've been thinking about this in terms of workforce impact. There's been a lot of, you know, discussion about how this new AI um, automation will remove jobs. And again, with each industry or technology inflection point, there were some things that you used to do that you'd have to retrain yourself and do more high value functions. If AI performs lower value functions, and of course the humans doing those lower value functions are now empowered you know, to do higher value functions. So our AI does a number of really cool tasks. It blows my mind on how, how uh, effective it is to working for a marketing team to help them just respond to people's interest with brands. And so you might come to a website and you're discovering a brand and you want to download a white paper, you do that. And then Normally, a human would follow up with you, and now an AI assistant can follow up and say, did you get what you needed? Are there other uh, content that you're interested in that I can provide you? And kind of nurture you along your discovery, um, you know, part of your, you know, of your buyer's life cycle. And then there's, you know, there's really neat marketing things you can do, like driving people to events, to, you know, to online webinars, driving people to this podcast, to kind of get you to oversubscribe, you know, people who are consuming your content, you could follow up after con, you know, after, you know, these online events or in-person events. So a lot of really neat marketing functions that the AI does. And then the sales side, it's your best friend for a sales team. Um, you know, every uh, account executive or salesperson can now have an assistant that essentially pre-qualifies prospect customers before handing it to a salesperson. So now the salesperson can really focus on customers who are in market, who are ready to really talk and not too early in their discovery process. So there's sales activities that are awesome. And then lastly, we have AI that helps customer success teams uh, manage the day-to-day -day of um, their existing customer base. You know, so making sure that those customers are healthy, reaching out if they're low utilization or help onboarding customers. You can use AI to onboard 
You can upsell, cross-sell, so you can do more sales to your base of, of existing customers. So think of this as a workforce now of AI assistants, very human-like, and they're, they're assisting the humans to do a better job. That's why we call it growth workforce, because we're part of each of these marketing sales and customer success teams that are focused on growth, you know, revenue, essentially. And that's what makes us different, because we're... We're focused on tasks that really just contribute to the top line, to revenue, um, you know, growth. Okay, so I, I have two questions. Um, first one is hearing you talk about, uh, you know, d digital workers and doing human-like jobs. and But uh, it seems to me that the traditional RPA vendors, robotic process automation, were positioning, some of them were positioning their bots as digital workers as well. Yeah. And that was maybe five years ago. Before yeah. uh, explosion of, of current, uh, so how how are you, how are your Conversica's bots more human like or more capable than that? Not a specific RPA vendor, but just RPA bots in general. Yeah, so the it's a great question, Sean. RPA robotic process automation is really um, application code that exists in the back office to assist employees functions that the employee's doing. None of it's really customer facing. It's all kind of, can I help you with finance activities, sales activities, but behind the scenes. So it'd be things like connecting data from one source system to another or one application to another. And you're really automating the integration of a lot of your tech stack in the back office, helping your employees be more effective. So it's a, it's a cost reduction or people effectiveness, you know, enhancer set of applications. And that's what made RPA take off because there's so much inefficiency in just the tasks you do behind the scenes. But now think about all the tasks you do where you're customer facing. And the idea of applying ADA, um, automation to tasks that directly involve your customers oh my God, there's no way. I mean, the RPA vendors are really, again, it's all things that are hidden from the end customer's point of view, has nothing to do with stuff that directly engages the end customer, or customer prospects and existing customers. So that's the biggest difference is you're automating tasks in the back office or you're automating tasks in the front office, so to speak, you know, engaged with the customer. And that's where we're focused. Really big differentiator is how human-like does it need to be? Is it an IT help desk that everybody knows is a bot and it doesn't really have to be human-like? It just answers particular IT questions like reset my password. Or is it a complex conversation around selling a complex product or service? I mean, that's night and day in terms of intelligence level or human-like level. Okay, thanks. So pivoting to a completely different topic, uh, regulation. So you talked about complying with existing re regulations, whether it be HIPAA, whether it be ISO, whether existing uh, world regulatory frameworks for different industries. But what about these new calls to regulate AI in general, whether it's the extreme end, you know, the AI pause or just just um, Sam Altman going to Congress and saying we need some kind of regulation and essentially he's saying, well, we'll do it ourselves, but we're letting you know that we're going to do it ourselves. But but what do you think? Should, should the um, European uh, Economic uh, Union put in regulations? Should Congress 
actually regulate AI and generative AI specifically uh, over the long term or not? Well, I think the quick answer is there's a ton of regulation already in place around data privacy and you know data regulations in general. So my message to the you know you know to the general public is it's not like we're starting from scratch. Trust me, there's a there's a lot of regulations in place that will apply to the use of um, your data, even in this you know AI world. That being said, um, you know the EU has been very proactive in its uh, development of um, GDPR, and now the AI Act is um, is also in draft. And when you look at what that really means is it's a layer on top of the existing data regulations that, you know, that are out there at cut that still cover very meaningful areas that are more specific, you know, to machine learning, deep learning, AI um, models and their use. And the, and the factors that the EU are focused on is, is the AI trustworthy? Are we being, you know, transparent, around the use of the data and it's the models, you know, um, what is the specifics around data use for training and acting? Is there any human oversight in these systems? What kind of monitoring and auditing is being done? Of course, accuracy, it's been at the top of most people's minds, security, resilience, and then, you know, also equally important in the layman's discussions is non-discrimination and diversity, um, you know, with these um, AI models. And so all of those have been put on the table by the EU and the world is debating on what level of regulation needs to be applied across each of those factors. My quick answer is absolutely. I mean, I don't want my data to be misused. I don't want my brand as Jim Cascade to be misrepresented because your reputation as an individual, your reputation as a company is, is, is important. And so when something kind of, you know, puts that at odds, um, you really are going to need to have regulatory bodies that give you a voice and allow you to have some, you know, ability to act. And these companies are big, right? Microsoft, OpenAI, Google, Amazon, Meta, and so for the small individual who says, hey, my data has been misused or, you know, responses and questions about me have been, you know, um, inappropriately given, there's got to be a way for the individual to, you know, to uphold, um, you know, integrity around, you know, themselves or companies, brands, et cetera. Absolutely. Near the end. So my final question is you've been in this market for such a long time. You've seen the way it has kind of grown. You're seeing now the hype of generative AI. Where do you see us going from here? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, look at what happened with the computer, you know, the PC. Look what happened with the phone. Look what happened with the World Wide Web. I think AI is going to be more disruptive than any of those or all of them added together. And that's a pretty bold statement because those have been all very disruptive. I think AI is going to benefit, you know, humankind um, unbelievably in every segment, um, you know, in every vertical and in the ones that hopefully are very meaningful to the, um, 
you know, the human population and you know, healthcare, for example, I think there's just going to be a lot. And it starts with making our experiences much more simple, easy, frictionless, getting access to the things that we need more quickly, you know, and, and, you know, just having that great user experience uh, is going to become the norm. You know, the speed to which we can obtain value as an individual is going to accelerate. And so I think all of those things are going to happen with this now, you know, AI advancement and the specific use cases are endless. I mean, if you really look at how this AI technology, conversational AI specifically in my space, I mean, think about, you know, it's like, you know, the the uh, personal assistant in your car that knows, you know, what your calendar is, your ability to shop and, you know, create the meal for the evening, you know, know which restaurants you want to go to. I mean, all the things that, you know, travel assistance that make that experience, you know, not scary and economic, uh, economically viable. There's going to be endless experiences that are going to improve uh, tremendously with this uh, technology. I'm excited to be, you know, at least in it. If I was retired and on the sidelines, I would be a bit sad because this is probably the most amazing time to be a CEO and a CEO of an AI company. It's like, pinch me. I mean, it's just uh, insane uh, to just have this Venn diagram of, of things happening, especially for me personally. It's uh, super, super exciting. So does that mean you're thinking about retiring soon? <laughs> you know, there are fun things to do in the world. Um, I love building technology that disrupts, but I also like using it and having more time with family and friends. But yeah, surfing. what about surfing? <laughs> you know, I'm a big wave surfer, so I do have <laughs> you know some adrenaline junkie you know um, needs to be met. But yeah, yeah, um, I am an extreme sport person, and I love traveling. So, you know, being a tech CEO does kind of ground me sometimes. And I think work hard, play hard. Um, I, I don't see myself retiring anytime soon, but I know when I do, I'll be sad because this, this technology <laughs> world is so fast and so, you know, fun to be a part of. Absolutely. Perfect. Any more questions, Sean, or you? Okay. No, I'm all set. Thank you so much. I, I learned a lot. So thanks for being on here with us. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thank Esther. Thank you, Esther, and and uh, and all of your listeners. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining us today. To our listeners, you can check out conversica.com and what they do. I wrote a story about their customers, so please check that out on Tech Target's editorial website. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the Tech Target news website.